You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. On July 17th of 1955 in Anaheim, California, Disneyland was opened. It was a major event. Nothing like this had ever happened in our country as far as what they were doing in that park and the vision of Walt Disney that was coming into its actual living manifestation there, a dream that he had dreamed a long time. And one of the things they did on that opening day is they positioned workers all around the castle to look for frightened children and worried parents who had been separated from each other. They knew that the castle was the tallest thing in the park, and they knew that parents would say, if you get lost, go to the castle and I'll meet you there. If you get separated, if you get disoriented, if you look around and you don't know, you don't see my face, you don't know where to go, look for that castle and go back to that and you'll find your way back to me. Well, when my son-in-law, Zach Winters, and my daughter, Hope, got married, one of the things I told them about marriage is that it's going to be great for the next couple of hours, but once the honeymoon's over, and once you find out that you're both sinners, and suddenly, you know, she slurps her cereal, you've never seen that one before, huh? Why didn't you do that in engagement, you know, or whatever? Once you get married and you find out how hard it is, if you get separated, if you get against crossways with each other, go back to the gospel and you'll find your way home. Go back to that central core and you'll find each other there. You'll meet each other back at the gospel. Well, this is also true for churches. Churches sometimes have to say, wait a minute, we've lost our way, we've, we've gotten disoriented, and we need to go back to the tallest thing, the biggest thing, the most glorious thing that we have as a church. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to go back to that if we ever lose our way, if we, if we look up and start celebrating the wrong things and start to think that, well, if we could only have a building or more people or more money, then, man, we'll be succeeding no, that's called disorientation. That's a, a lesser victory than we want. It's a false victory. We need to go back, go back to the gospel, go back to the foundations. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you back to the foundations of this church and also any church that has loved Jesus, has wanted to obey Jesus and submit to Jesus and worship Jesus I'm going to take you back to the foundations, and I'm going to show you some things that help you understand who we are as a body of believers, what is our goal as a church, what are the foundations that we're standing on as a church, we're going to do that. And so here's a basic roadmap for you that we're going to be walking through today. The first thing that we're going to be looking at is the foundations of the church found in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. What is it? What are we called to do? What are we about? Then we're going to look at the authority of God's Word from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And not only the authority of God's Word, but also the priority. Because it is authoritative, we are going to set God's Word as a priority in our church. And I've been asking God all week long, Father, I want you to prepare 
in the hearts of Redeemer Georgetown a place for your word to find its home today. That God would be preparing you for this gathering. That there would be something in you that is so ready to hear the voice of God this morning. And so I want to pray and ask you to join me in this moment of just expectation and asking the Father to do His good work in us. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful. It's, it's such a joy to gather with your people this morning, to know that in your wonderful, beautiful way, you gather here with us, that something wonderful and great happens as the church comes together and you gather here with us and that we might set our affection on you and let us be pulled away from the shiny things of this world the distractions of this world, and maybe even the scary and dark things of this world, and look at you as we open the pages of Scripture. And Father, I pray, give me the grace to preach today and give your people the grace to listen today and to hear your good voice as you speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this church in particular I want you to know what we're about. I want you to know what the victory is, what the reason is, what the win is. If you were to ask the question, why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we going? What is a win at Redeemer Georgetown? You're going to find that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. A familiar text to many of you, maybe to some of you it's new, but listen to these words of Jesus as he has both lived the perfect life, died a sinner's death, buried in a borrowed tomb for three days, and then rise victorious, trampling death to death. He rose victorious over sin and death. And as he was about to go back up into heaven, he said these words to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this guiding principle of Jesus commissioning the twelve is still alive and at work in every single church that wants to know and love and honor and obey Him. It is the goal in mind for us and for every church before us that had that ambition, that had the ambition of serving and obeying Him. Make disciples. If you want to look at the strategy of Jesus, how did it happen? How did the gospel and the message of Jesus move from Jerusalem all the way to Georgetown, Texas? Well, he spent his time teaching 12 men in particular. And as he taught them at the end of his life, one of them betrayed him, all of them ran away, and he was alone, and he died there on that cross and took our place. And then as he went and made proclamation to the saints now, or to the spirits now in prison, in that time, everything looked to be lost, but it wasn't. Jesus had paid our sin debt. And when he came back to life on the third day, he commissions the 12 and he says to them, 
All authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm commissioning you now to go and do what I did. He lived with them. He ate with them. He taught the masses, but then he got in a private small place and taught the twelve. Then he, as he leaves, he fills them with his spirit, and they go out into Jerusalem, and they start to do the exact same thing. They start to teach in a large group and then gather in a small group. They start to serve, and they start to witness to who Jesus is, and the church starts to grow. 2,000 years ago, it was only in Jerusalem, but it continued to grow to Judea, Samaria. It goes outward and outward to the ends of the earth, and it finds its way here to us today. And that is a good and right and glorious thing that we are a part of, is making disciples. What is it all about? Why do we gather? Why do we sing? Why do we serve the community? Why do we set up signs and, and do all these things? Why, why are we here? We're here to make disciples. Plain and simple. What does that mean for you? Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we want to see you advance and grow into the image of Christ. We believe that will happen as we proclaim God's word from this pulpit, but also in gospel community. We make no apology because we are, as this sermon is titled, joyfully submitted to the word of God. This is the foundation that we're standing on. Now, I want you to know that we are a part of a great cloud of witnesses that started 2,000 years ago and finds its way here today. But I want to point to a graphic that I find every bit compelling as anything has ever seen. It's beautiful. The graphic that shows you what is the Redeemer Network. This is a fascinating, and you probably can't, I guess you can't see that as well as I'd like you to. But I want you to know this. What you're looking at here Redeemer Lubbock. You know what all of these are? Churches that took the Great Commission seriously and started to plant churches that would do the exact same thing. These are the 27 churches that came out of that initial church. And though you can't see it, there's a church that's marked number 16 that was called Soma of Georgetown. Georgetown planted... Uh, the Redeemer had planted one other time in 2019. They, they didn't make it. And God is sovereign over the life and death of any church. But God brought a new vision into Georgetown for Redeemer Georgetown to be planted. And you're a part of that right now. We're number 25. We're right here, okay? But I want you to know this. It is my firm, complete conviction and expectation that out of number 25... There's going to be lines drawn to Salado and Liberty Hill and Gerald that we want to join in this great work. We've been called into it, and that will last into eternity. God willing, this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to make disciples like Jesus said that we should. And so as you come into this, I want to invite you into an eternal work that is beautiful. It is a work that Christ started back in Jerusalem, and He commissioned His first followers to do. That's what we're going to do. That's what we've been called to do, to grow into the likeness of Christ. And we could call that, in a very simple way, learning and living the way of Jesus in Georgetown. We want to learn how did He do it, how did He live, and we want to learn what He taught, and then we want to replicate that. That's the goal. 
That's the ambition of our hearts. That's what we fully intend to do. And because of that, you have to start somewhere, right? You have to say, well, what are the, what are the, how do you know if you're making progress towards that? There, there should be cultural markers in your church. Every team, every office, every family, every church has a culture, right? Like you go into certain people, you go to your friend's house and something's normal there that just isn't normal at your house, right? Whatever that is. I mean, we, we have a, a Bose speaker that sits on our counter and it's, it, it's not that uncommon to have a dance party at our house. It might be weird for you. It was weird for us. We just got used to it, right? You will get invited into the dance party. It's usually 80s tunes, um, but it's going to happen. It's just part of our thing. You know what else is normal at our house? Words of affirmation. We just do that. We, at your birthday, will sit around, and each one of us will go around the table and say, I want to tell you my favorite things about you, a favorite thing, a favorite memory. And we'll sit around the table, and when it's your birthday, you pick the meal, whatever you want to eat, and then we're going to sit around, and we're going to tell you what we love about you. That's normal for us. Every house has a culture. Every office has a culture. Every team has a culture. Every church has a culture. Whether they planned it or didn't plan it, they've got a culture. Things that are celebrated, things that are normal, things that are important to them. And you don't want to stumble into these cultural markers. You want to plan them, and you want to ask God for them, that things three years from now about this church that we should say, well, that's just normal at Redeemer Georgetown. That's part of their culture. That's what they do. Well, what are those cultural markers? The first one today is that we are joyfully submitted to the Word of God. We're not grudgingly submitted to the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is a great gift that Jesus himself is the Word made flesh. So to love the Word of God is to love Jesus. To be ashamed of the Word of God is to be ashamed of Jesus. We're not going to do that. We're joyful that we have the instruction and the presence of our King Jesus in this church as a guiding light to us. We love that. We're not only joyfully submitted to the Word of God, we're also fully known and fully loved by God. There is not a thing that you have hidden from him that he's going to find out and go, oh, wow, really? You're not on a first date with him trying to impress him anymore. He knows you. He's seen you. Before the foundation of the world, he understood your flaws, your backsliding. He understood your joys, your hopes, your fears, your dreams. He understood all of it. And he saved you. You are fully known. And in that full knowledge, he didn't go, well, now that I know this about you, I can't love you. No, it was the opposite. He knows you fully and he loves you fully. Also, we are shaped and formed by prayer. By prayer. Prayer is the central activity in the New Testament church. I don't know if you know that. Prayer is the great gift that God gives the believer to shape their heart and mind and to draw them into Him and deepen our affections for Him to be greater than the affections for the things of this world. So we're shaped by prayer. We're formed by prayer. As you pray, your heart changes. 
Your ambitions change. But also we are burdened with hope. These are the normal things I hope you will say, God willing, that's exactly what they celebrate. Somehow this burden of knowing Christ and, and having Him as your treasure, that that is so compelling to you that you want to tell others about it. You want to find a way to build a relationship with somebody who doesn't have that joy and bring them into it. That's what it means to be burdened with hope. Now, will you be able to repeat these words in a year, two years, three years? I don't know, but you're going to feel them. You're going to say, when I'm with Redeemer Georgetown and the time I spend with them, there are some things they celebrate. There are some things that are normal for them. And the reason those things are normal, they're like signposts on a country road. And you look and you say, oh, okay, we're headed the right way. Because I see this, because I see a burden with hope, because I see an a joy in God's Word and submitting to it, I know I'm heading the right direction towards what? Towards make disciples. Towards learning and living the way of Jesus in Georgetown. If you don't see those signposts, we're probably going the wrong direction. And so, as you engage with us, I believe you will find these things to become normal. We're asking God to make them a normal part of what is uh, happening here at Redeemer Georgetown. Maybe you're not used to the whole praying with other people. You know, I, I, I still remember when I was a brand new Christian, people praying out loud and kind of looking at me like, it's, it's your turn. And I'm like, ah, dad, you just didn't want to do it. <laughs> Scared to death I was going to pray something stupid. I mean, the, the basic prayer I knew was God is great. God is good. Thank you for this daily food. That's as far as I'd gotten in public prayer, right? <laughs> These people were looking at me like they wanted me to pray out loud, and I'm like, ah, you know, and, 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 and finally, I jumped out there at a bonfire thing at Pine Cove one night. Everybody's praying spontaneously, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, man, if they get paused, and I'm going to jump in there. I'm just going to like, yeah, I'm going to jump in, and I'm going to go, and uh, it got silent for a few seconds, people praying, and I go, oh. Father, I just want to say thank you for the new friends that I've made here this weekend. I was really nervous about coming to this retreat, didn't know anybody, and you gave me new friends. And I mean, I hadn't barely stopped, and this girl prays a rebuke prayer. Father, we're not here to make friends. We're here to get to know you. And Father, I just thank you that you love us. And I was like, oh, never again, never again will I pray out loud like that and be made full of like that. You know, like, but you know something? I wasn't talking to her. I was talking to him. And I so want you to understand these normal things in the Christian life are part of the life of Redeemer Georgetown because we want to go somewhere. We want to do something. We want to be involved in disciple-making, learning and living the way of Jesus. And we believe that if we will prioritize these and ask God for these things, and if we won't get distracted by false goals, lesser goals, that God will use this church to make disciples who plant churches out there. I believe that's going to happen. And I so want you to engage with us, not in a peripheral way, but neck deep in that. Okay? Well, how are we going to get there? Let's start with the first one, okay? We're joyfully submitted to the Word of God. I want you to know that what I just read to you from 2 Timothy has a context. There's a very famous verse, if you will, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy where he says all Scripture is given by God, it's inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, it's profitable. 
there's a context I want you to know in which Paul is writing this letter, and you need to know the context. He is in the Mamertine prison, the same place where the Apostle Peter had been kept before his execution. Nero, in 64 AD, had blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. He's writing, Paul is writing to Timothy, who I think probably a little bit unfairly is, ca- is characterized over and over again as timid. Maybe so, but let me tell you what's going on for the Christians in 64 AD or 67 when this letter was written. Nero has not only blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome, he's also made it very fashionable to be uh, antagonistic towards Christians, to torture them, to even light them on fire in his garden parties. So was Timothy timid? Well, okay, sure, but we all would be, right? Culture gone mad. Christians on the menu, right? You could mock them, you could beat them, you could arrest them, and everybody would cheer for you. This was the hated group. And so here's how Paul describes the coming days to this pastor of Ephesus, his spiritual son in the faith. And this is perhaps weeks, days, or even hours before Paul is going to be beheaded. He writes this letter to Timothy and he says, Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Aren't we in the last days? Wasn't Paul already in the last days? Is he talking about something unique here? Biblically speaking, the last days started at the ascension of Christ, but I believe he is pointing to a time in the future when it's even going to get worse than anything Timothy had ever seen. He says, difficult times will come, and here's why. People will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I just want to stop there for a moment and say that if you have children that are disobedient to their parents, what's going on there is they refuse to accept authority from a young age. And if they won't accept their parents' authority, they will never accept the authority of someone else, like a police officer They'll never accept the authority of a coach or a teacher. They learned early on, I don't have to obey. I don't have to submit. And so they grow up with this chip on their shoulder of, I don't have to do what you say. Then they become ungrateful. They've got all this stuff, but they don't feel any gratitude. It's called entitlement. You feel like it's yours. You deserve that. That's yours. No reason to feel grateful. They're going to be unholy, heartless. They don't feel, they don't feel grief, they don't feel sadness, unappeasable, no matter how much you apologize, no matter how much you try to make it right, they'll have nothing to do with that. They'll be slanderous, they will not have self-control, they're going to be brutal, not loving good, they'll be treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, self-importance, like The me generation, it's all about me. Give me credit. Make sure I get the likes and the clicks. You can see where this is going, right? They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have the appearance of godliness. They'll have a righteous standing in their own mind of, well, I'm right. I'm noble. I'm good. And here's how. But denying the power. Paul says avoid such people. 
Go on down and look in verse 7. It says, these people will always be learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Always learning, always taking notes, always getting more and more information, but they can't arrive at the truth. The truth being Jesus. The ultimate truth, a person. His name is Jesus. They'll never get to that. And then he goes back and quotes, uh, points back, and the Jewish mind would be very familiar with this, the men who opposed Moses when he was in Pharaoh's courts, and these magicians came, and they tried to fight against Moses. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also will oppose the truth. Men that are corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, they will not get very far, and their folly will become plain to all, just as it was with these two men. Remember when Moses was convincing Pharaoh to let my people go, and it the, the miracles were a display of God's power over the Egyptian uh, little g gods. And they could take these magicians somehow, uh, the water, and turn it into what looked like blood. They could have frogs that would come. They could replicate what looked like authority and power. They only got into two miracles. And on the third one was gnats. They tried to replicate the gnats, and they couldn't do it. And, and it became... Plain to everybody watching, they couldn't do it with the gnats. you got to hand it to these guys. They must have caught 10 or 12 gnats and somehow tried to conceal them in here and done something like this. And the little squirt of gnats that they had went... And then they look at Pharaoh and go, look, this is the hand of God. We can't do anything with this. He says, that's what these people are going to do. They're not going to get very far. They're going to try. And the scary thing about this passage is they're going to sound religious. This is a culture gone mad. This is a society gone mad. And this is the context in which Paul says to Timothy, you, however, in contrast to them, you followed my teaching. You followed my life, my faith, my struggles. You have been familiar with the sacred writings since you were a little boy. You learned it from your mother and grandmother, and you learned it from me. Stay with that in a world gone mad. And then he makes this great statement. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Every bit of the Word of God is breathed out, inspired by God. It is inerrant. It is the truth about life. It is the truth about sin, about time, about death, about the unseen realm. The Word of God speaks truth over human relationships over human identity, over culture. And so the Word of God is this deep, true anchor in the middle of a storm. And he says it is profitable for teaching. So teach the Word of God. It is profitable for correction so that you would correct people when they're in error and you'd show them this is the truth. Training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
And so when we now live in a culture that sounds like what we just read in chapter 3, when we have a culture that is ready to redefine marriage as any consenting people that come together, that love each other, and when we look back at the Word of God and we see this, the correct description from God's Word about what marriage is. Just listen to this. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 22 says, And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man He made into a woman, and He brought her to the man. And the man said, This is the last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, listen to this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. God says, this is marriage. I gave it to you. It's a gift. It's not just two consenting people. And why would it even, if you take away this standard, why would it be anything like two? Just make it three, four, five, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be man and wife. It could be man and man. It could be woman and woman. Then, then they're going to call that marriage. And I say, no, hold on a second. God defines marriage. What else does God define? We live in a culture that says that a, a person can say at any given moment that I have changed my gender. I am a woman. I am a man. Well, Scripture says this. So God, in verse chapter uh, 1 of Genesis says, so God created Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When it comes to race, when it comes to ethnicity, when it comes to nationality, and we get all of that turned on its head, and no wonder we end up divided. Listen to this that Peter, God says through the uh, Apostle Peter, he says, But you, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, you are a chosen race, Christian a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see how much identity is happening in this? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I know that for some of you, you're pushing back a little bit, and I understand why. I have one of my children, I won't say who, that knows what the Scripture says, but would, would say, but, but Dad, I, I want to be inclusive. I want to be loving. I want to be, I don't want to be like, you know, the person that really doesn't accept people. I don't either. But here's the truth. The Word of God is light in the darkness. The Word of God tells us what is true. The Word of God points us to His Son. The Word of God shows us what is right. We can't just deny it. You know, it, it, it's oh, people do it all the time. But I ask you to consider this illustration. Just consider with me. We were, we were in, uh, in Venice, and we were in... We were in St. Mark's Square, and we went up into this uh, church that was built there. And I, I couldn't get over how enormous it was and how high the ceilings were. And I kept thinking, 
you did this without computers. Like, you, I don't know how you did this. But I do know this. They used good math or it wouldn't work. Right? So you get, uh, you get a guy who's a, a master tradesman and he's, he's building things, he's designing things, and he gets some young 18, 20-year-old guy who wants to take up the trade, and he goes and he says to him, I want you to cut all these two-by-fours exactly to three feet, two and three-quarter inches. He comes back, and he's got some of them that are about three feet long, some about four, some about two feet long, and he brings them back, and he sets them in front of the master tradesman, and he says, I, I got the boards, and he says, what'd you do? I told you to cut them exactly to this. He says, that's your truth. It's so judgmental. I mean, I cut the boards according to what felt right to me at the time. This is my truth. I want you to accept that this is what I'm doing and, and that I'm making something beautiful that maybe you can't understand because you're old school or whatever. Okay, do you want to walk into that house? Do you want to buy that house? No, you don't. It wouldn't be safe. It wouldn't be good at all. There have to be standards by which God laying out what is true is a safety, is a joy, is light and life to us. And when we find ourselves saying, I don't want to be unloving, promise me, I promise you this, the most loving thing you can say to anybody heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter, anybody, is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the Savior of the world, that He will take away your sin, whatever that sin is. That's Him. And we're not willing to rewrite or amend Scripture because it may be unpalatable. We have to declare what is true. We will with joy say, thank you, Father, for your word, because Jesus is the manifestation of your word, and we love him. We will not be ashamed of him. Can I just ask you, I rarely do this, but raise your hand if you Googled something this week. Anybody. Look around. Do you know now that we Google things to prove what is true? You can be in a debate with somebody and say, Google it. Find out who's right. Just, just Google it. You know what you're saying? We'll know what is true when we type this in and they give us the answer. Friends, can you see how dangerous that might be when it comes to things like the truth of life and death and human relationships? And listen, I understand that this is hard, but... This is beautiful and glorious and God-given that all Scripture comes from Him. And because all Scripture comes from Him, and it has final authority in every area of life, it also has to have priority. Okay? Listen to what Paul says next. And, and, and if, if, if you use your imagination, try to see the red lights blinking all around chapter 4 one and two. Because if you if you make your if you're honored enough to be a preacher of God's word, there are red lights around these two verses. Listen to this. Remember, he's about to die and he's speaking to the pastor of Ephesus, his son in the faith, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom 
I charge you, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Teach what the Bible says. You don't have to convert anyone. God will do that. Or He won't do that. But your job is to faithfully say what is there. And I charge you in the presence of God, I charge you in the presence of of Jesus, that you teach the Word. Don't come up with five things about how to make people more, their life more meaningful. Make them happy. Preach the Word. Let God do His work in their soul. Let God speak to them because He has not only final authority, He has power in His Word. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see that? I'm not clever enough to shepherd you apart from this book. I'd be a loud, I'd be a terrible preacher if I had to come up with just life principles and something to charge you up and encourage you. And, and And if I never, ever gave you something that caused you to walk out of here limping, then I have not shepherded you. Listen to this. He says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth. They'll wander off into myths. Friends, that's the generation we're in right now. That sometimes the Word of God is so comforting and encouraging, and other times it is bright and it illuminates an area of sin in your life. The sin of wanting to be appreciated by everybody out there, liked by everyone out there, wanting to be included by everyone out there, when the Holy uh, Trinity has called you into fellowship with Himself and given you a mission in life. God, forgive us when we prefer their opinion over yours our own opinion over yours. And because of that, there's momentum and we get wanting to have a preacher that will say everything I want to hear. Friends, if you, if you make this your last Sunday and you go find that, you will find a preacher, but you will not find a pastor. Every now and then someone loves you enough to say, I need to talk to you. What I see in your life It's frightening to me. I think you're on the wrong path. And I love you too much to sit silent as you disobey the word of God and go headlong into something that is going to cause great damage to you. If you don't have a friend like that, 
I hope you get one. I hope you are one. Because our love for God and our love for people will sometimes create a spark between us where there's a collision and you say, it's because I love you that I'm going to speak up. And I want to say to you, I'm concerned. And, and if you hear me wrong in saying that I just hate this kind of person or that kind of... Listen, I think we're all in need of Jesus' grace at the foot of the cross. Whatever your sin is, whatever mine, we all need His grace. We all need His correction. We all need His mercy. And so Paul says to, them, to, to Timothy, there's coming a time when people won't want to hear sound teaching. Friends, that's happening right now. Not just in America, but in all the Western countries. A refusal to hear the truth of God's Word. To deny its authority. To deny its power. And there's something wonderful that God says to us as we look at the Scriptures about why it is the way it is. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 6. The Lord says, thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient path where the good way is and walk in it. And there you will find rest for your soul. It's there that you find rest for your soul. When you outsmart God and His wisdom, it's only a matter of time before you're exhausted. In fact, you can even do this right now. Look at your life and ask yourself, Am I exhausted? Am I worn out? Let that be the starter of a prayer that sounds like this. Father, where have I outsmarted you and disobeyed the instruction you've given me? Perhaps you're not finding rest because you're trying to be the navigator, the Lord, the captain of your life. And what is it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? It's, it's these words. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you... God's Word is not a tyrant. Because God's Word is His Son. It's His Savior. It is the manifestation of Jesus. I'm about to send my sweet Gracie off to school. I'll be driving her. Monica and I on Wednesday. There's something I so want. Something I want for all my children, more than I want anything else for them after they're saved, of course, their salvation, but love Him. Turn to Him. Don't just live based on your own intellect and your own intuition. What seems right seems good to you. When you find yourself having a professor like I did at University of North Texas, a first philosophy class, and this guy just attacks the Bible as the most barbaric and idiotic book he's ever heard of, and he happens to have a uh, master's degree in theology. That's this guy that's teaching philosophy at University of North Texas. He looked at this all like we're stupid if we believe the Bible. Okay, what's the ground you're going to stand on against that? It's not just going to be intellectual. It's going to be a person, and his name is Jesus. And he calls you into truth, and in that truth, he calls you into rest. Andrew Peterson Great singer-songwriter. Do you know Andrew? Like, he's such a gifted musician. Sorry. Let me just put you on the spot right up here, Timmy. He wrote a song to his son when his son was about to go to college. And I want to read the words of this song. It's called, You Find Your Way. He says, When I look at you, boy, 
I can see the road that lies ahead. I can see the love and the sorrow. Bright fields of joy, dark nights awake in a stormy bed. I want to go with you, but I can't follow. So keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. When it's your first kiss, your first crush, the first time... (laughs) This is so (laughs) raw and real to me right now. The first time that you know you're not enough. The first time that no one's there to hold you. The first time that you pack it all up and drive alone across America, please remember the words that I told you. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. If love is what you're looking for, the old roads lead to an open door and you will find your way back home. And I know you'll be scared when you take up that cross I know it will hurt because I know what it costs. I love you so much and it's so hard to watch. But you're going to grow up and you're going to get lost. Just go back. Go back. Go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, son, whatever you do to the hope that has taken a hold of you. And you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. Friends, The Word of God is better than that castle in Anaheim in 1955. The Word of God is our bright beacon, and it's more than just a Bible. It's a person, and He invites you home to Himself. He invites you into rest. And we don't get to amend His Word because we think it's unpalatable. We lovingly call everyone to repent, everyone And to look to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation that we stand on as we say, this is what this church stands on. And this is where we're going. We want to make disciples. We don't want to be a church that fades off into the darkness. And maybe even keeps meeting but doesn't make disciples. That's not enough. He is worthy and He is good. And every sermon, I hope, leads you to this table where you say, oh, I'm not enough. Uh, If you knew my story, you'd be ashamed of me. You'd be ashamed if you knew all the things I've done. Okay, I don't need to know that. I know that a Savior died a sinner's death so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have communion with the Father. He gave His body, He gave His blood, that we might be saved. And Christ not only died, Christ rose again, and Christ will return someday. Pray with me.